Welcome to Archiving AK, a podcast of the Archives and Special Collections at the UAA APU Consortium Library in Anchorage, Alaska. We are here to talk about what we do, what our researchers are up to, and to give you a closer look at the world of archives. This is Arlene, and in this, our March 2019 podcast, we're commemorating Women's History Month. Gwen, Veronica, and I have chosen some documents from our holdings written by women in Alaska to share with you. All three of the women who are the authors of the documents we're sharing moved to Alaska as adults and have unique perspectives on their life here. November 21st, 1936. Well, we are okay and on the inside. Anyone not in Alaska is on the outside. This is how Thelma Calkins began a letter to her parents from Juneau on her way to start a new life in the Matanuska Palmer colony with her husband Herb and four sons. The Matanuska colony project was a New Deal project in which families, mostly from Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan, settled in the Matanuska Valley and Palmer to farm. Unlike most of the settlers, the Calkins family was from Montana rather than the upper Midwest. Because of poor administration, unfavorable growing conditions, and lack of a viable market for the crops, the failure rate of the farms in the colony was high. By 1940, half of the families had left the colony. Thelma Calkins's letters to her family detail the many struggles of adjusting to life in a new place concerns about the future of the colony and the family's finances, and the challenges of raising a family. In one letter to her family, she writes about the challenges of transportation in Alaska. December 15, 1936. If you are still planning to drive a car to Alaska in two years, you might just as well change your plans. We hear Canada hasn't done any work on the road, and you would be surprised how far it is here. An awful lot further than I thought. Despite having recently arrived, Thelma and her husband made sure the children had a nice Christmas. December 25th, 1936. The Boxer, a ship, arrived and the mail got to Palmer day before yesterday. The toys came to the trading post, but the Christmas tree decoration didn't, so we had no tree. Each colonist was allowed credit of $2 for each child for Christmas presents. We did not get as much as that, but we got enough presents that the kids had a very nice Christmas, and they had a wonderful time. Herb made each of the three older boys a sled, and they surely were cute. He trimmed them up with a coping saw and painted them. He gave Jim the orange sled because it matched his hair. Dick's was green, and Don's was blue. Each was trimmed in a contrasting color. Of course, the kids had to get outside and use them a lot. Thelma writes a lot about the family's health, especially that of herself and her sons. All of the children came down with colds on the journey to Alaska, but the youngest son, Carl, was hit the hardest. Carl has been sick, and we are worried about him, and had the doctor twice. However, we have had babies as sick in Montana and didn't think of the doctor, but we thought that we had better be safe. He took cold and had the flu and is cutting at least five new teeth, so guess that is enough to make almost anyone feel badly. 
The doctor is paid by the corporation, and the colonist pays the corporation. $3 for calls in the country and $1.25 for office calls, and it is charged to our account. The Red Cross nurse visits each family once a month, and if anyone is reported sick, she calls every day until the patient is okay. I expect her to come tomorrow for her last call, as Carl is much better. I will be glad when the teeth are through. The poor kid hasn't learned to walk yet, for he has either been traveling or sick for quite a while. He can take a few steps alone, but he has been able to do that for some time. She also writes about her own wide range of health issues, the nature of which is not exactly clear from her letters. Interestingly, she makes a point of saying that she does not think they are related to Alaska's climate. I feel lots better now. No, the climate isn't hurting me. I merely worked too hard and got run down, as I have a habit of doing. The medicine I am taking is helping me a good deal, and I have rested for so long, and I think that helps even more than the medicine. A common theme in Thelma's letters, and in the records of the Alaska Rural Rehabilitation Corporation, which we also hold in the archives, is that the colonists went deep into debt. The idea was that the colonists would eventually make enough farming to pay back the startup costs that the government had provided them, but things didn't exactly go to plan. January 3rd, 1937. This surely is a funny place. You can go just as far into debt as you like, and there is no way to avoid big debt. Some are somewhat worried over it, and others wish they had gotten more than they did at first while the getting was good. Some say every cent has to be paid back, others say it is impossible for most to do it, so Uncle Sam will cancel the debt. One idea of the colony is to make these 200 families self-supporting. The main idea is to eventually make Alaska independent of the outside. Alaska can raise enough to support her population, but depends almost entirely upon the United States for food and clothing. These Alaskans are fishers, trappers, and miners, but very few are farmers. While the government wants to make everything as convenient as possible for us and give us good homes, barns, chicken houses, let us have the use of tractors and anything necessary to get our land into cultivation. We are temporarily on a budget of $63 a month in bingles or tin money for food. We don't know what our clothing budget is, but judging from our next door neighbors, it is probably about $25 a month. Of course, everything is higher than there. The first hay we got was Alaskan hay at $35 a ton. Now we are feeding $62 Washington hay. Some have quite a lot of stock. Why the government allows them to have so much to feed is hard to say unless the government is tired of feeding them. We are trying to be as economical as possible, of course, but are piling up a debt. Thelma often wrote about the beauty of Alaska and hoped her extended family would eventually join them. In some of the earlier letters, she seems cautiously optimistic about the success of the colony. June 29, 1937. The flowers are beautiful, and there are so many of them. Now the fireweed is in blossom. The flowers are about the size and color of large purple violets and grow in clusters about six or eight inches long. The children brought in a big bouquet of them this morning. This is a beautiful time of the year here. I really believe you would like it here. We haven't been here long enough 
to know enough about the country to encourage anyone to come, though. It is really just a big experiment so far, and I guess one can't prophesy just how it will turn out. October 27, 1937. A year ago this morning, we arrived in Seattle and were plenty tired. The kids had eaten a box of Xlax tablets, too. This last year has been pretty eventful for us, and I have really enjoyed it. We won't be Chichacos much longer, but Alaskans. You never mentioned coming up here. Are you still planning to come as soon as Dad is through with the commissioner job? I hope so. Less than a year and a half after the family arrived in Alaska, Thelma's outlook on the colony's success turned considerably more gloomy. March 4, 1938. No, I can't advise you folks to come here to live. It really would be foolish the way things look now. I don't want to worry you, but prospects for the future of this colony look worse all the time. If I am any prophet, this project will just blow up. But we will never be asked to pay any debts, I don't think. We are okay now and will continue to be until the end of this program, which is a year from April. There is work here, though. 75 cents an hour and board is the cheapest wages paid in mines. Of all the crookedness and graft, here in this colony is the place to find it. By 1941, Herb Calkins had gotten a job helping to build Fort Richardson in Anchorage. In the following letter, Thelma writes about trying to decide whether to move to Anchorage to be closer to Herb's job. November 25, 1941. The electric light poles go through our yard. The juice hasn't been turned on yet. We haven't signed up and won't until we know what we are going to do, as it will cost about $200, and the ARRC, the Alaska Rural Rehabilitation Corporation, announced that it would not pay anyone for that if he left his place. That is too much money to walk off and leave. If we decide to stay, it will be easy to hook up as it is so close. It costs $3.50 a month minimum rate, whether it is used or not. Our electrical appliances would cost a great deal too, so we are just waiting. The Calkins family did end up moving to Anchorage, but soon moved back to Palmer. Writing several years later, she is re- realistic about the farming prospects in the Matanuska Valley, but considers herself Alaskan. Last week, our neighbors, the Higginbothams, sold their farm for $11,000 to the most optimistic people. A young man who is married to a nurse. I doubt if either have lived on a farm. They are going to build a grade A barn and go into the dairy business. To have a grade A barn, they have to have running water, and they don't have a well. They are on 50 acres of timber that the man expects to clear in a little while, and the corporation tells him there's lots of land to rent. Where it is, we don't know. He is getting a loan to pay for the farm, equipment, a dairy barn, and sell them all to the army. Last year is the only year that was ever possible. The man no doubt thinks that the folks who live here just don't manage it right, and he will. He is buying a lovely home, okay, but he may end up with a job like Mr. Higginbotham has. At least I would not like to have a debt like that on one of these farms. But I am an Alaskan and swear by Alaska, like Mr. Hunter's article mentions. I just maintain that God didn't mean this for a farming country. Unlike many of the other colonists, the Calkins family stayed in Alaska, though they did not continue farming. The family eventually purchased a fish camp and began fishing commercially 
for MR Cannery. Thelma died at the Palmer Pioneer Home in 1991. Hi, this is Arlene. I really struggled with choosing something for this podcast. In the end, I decided to go with the item about I'm about to read for you because it doesn't have a name attached to it. We don't know what woman wrote this, which seems all too appropriate for so much of women's history. The following was a written recollection. A number of years ago, the Alaska Nurses Association started a project to gather materials related to the history of nursing in Alaska. One of the things they did was to seek out nurses and former nurses who would write up the recollections of their time in Alaska. This was one of the responses, and it came to us when the collection was deposited here by the Nurses Association. I was in the last Cadet Nurses Corps class. It began during World War II because of the shortage of nurses and continued through the fall of 1945 when I enrolled. The training was paid for by the government. You had to agree to spend the last six months of your training in one of three services, Veterans, Public Health, or Indian Service. I chose Indian Service, Department of Interior, with visions of saving the Indians on a reservation in Arizona and getting lots of sun to boot. The stipulation was discontinued before I graduated, but my interest had been piqued. I received information about the Indian service from the Department of the Interior and noticed Alaska was listed. I didn't hesitate a moment before I applied, even though I'd never been away from home before nor been on a train or plane. I was sent to Mount Edgecombe at Sitka and assigned to the tuberculosis sanatorium. I arrived sans luggage with $6 in my pocket. My bags arrived three weeks later, so I was able to return the shoes and uniforms I borrowed. Single, silly, and 20. What an adventure. 1948-49, to 49, Mount Edgecombe, Tuberculosis Sanatorium, Sitka, General Duty Nursing. 1949-1951, to 1951, Barrow Public Health Service Hospital, Indian Service, married. I worked for the Department of the Interior, Indian Service. I did general duty nursing and my new husband was the operating engineer. Barrow was interesting at that time. I was too young to realize the opportunities I had then to become interested in cultural differences and to be more aware of social conditions. I just accepted things as they were and thoroughly enjoyed the work. We did not have a doctor the two years I worked there. There was a retired EENT doctor who was the medical officer at the Navy base four miles east of the village and we could call on him when we needed to for emergencies. His name was Dr. Fate. The administrator of the hospital was an RN. She, another RN from the Alsace-Lorraine area near Germany, and myself covered the nursing duties. We had several aides from the village who were trained in patient care. We held health clinics every day. I had a lot to learn. Whenever there was a flu, dysentery, or communicable disease going around in the village, we might see 50 to 75 people a day. Visiting medical teams held special clinics for eye exams, orthopedic surgery, etc. We were very aware of the high incidence of tuberculosis at that time and had an ongoing program for testing and treating villagers. People also came in from the surrounding villages and the Colville coal mine. We did a lot of diagnosing and treating on our own in the daily clinic. The nurses took care of obstetrics, doing all the deliveries. Our OV packs used a bedpan as the base and included everything necessary for a delivery. Finally, the pan was used to catch the placenta. The women were delivered in the labor bed, never received any anesthetic or medication except ergotrate. Beautiful patients. 
Our sterilizer was heated with two kerosene burners, worked great. My husband converted the system to steam and it worked even better. We lived in a very small three-room cottage a hundred yards from the hospital and right behind the power plant which my husband was responsible for. Shortly after we arrived in Barrow, I had to sit down and make out a grocery and meat order for a year's supply. It came up in August on the North Star. Quite a chore for the new bride. We won't even discuss how many marshmallows, walnuts, and green beans I still had a year later. When I sent a paper tracing of my foot to a woman at Point Lay so she could make mucklucks to match a parka she had made me, the pilot who delivered it said she looked at it and thought he was playing a joke on her and threw it away. She didn't believe a woman could have size 10 feet. General health conditions, except for tuberculosis, were good, as I remember. Childhood diseases were a big worry. Whooping cough was a killer, as was meningitis. We probably had 60 deliveries while I was there, but there were still many babies to be delivered at home. We did all the immunizations for the school system. During 1950, we had a whooping cough epidemic, as did other villages down the coast. The Mukluk Telegraph, a monthly paper from Nome, had the headline, CAB Kills 20 Babies. They were referring to the fact that the Civil Aeronautic Board would not allow the available bush pilot to fly medicine to certain villages. I have forgotten the reasons, but children did die for lack of medication. I can remember the day the cooks came into the office and handed me a plate with the first muktuk I had seen, all neatly scored for easier eating, and then stood in the doorway giggling until I took my first bite. I don't remember swallowing, but I do remember chewing a long time. Needless to say, they were rewarded for their efforts by the expression on my face. Comparing Barrow as it is today to 1950 is hard. We never had to deal with alcohol, drugs, snow machines, poverty, unemployment, sexual assault, child abuse. There may have been a peace officer, but I was not aware of him or her. There was a visiting magistrate who had hearings when necessary. One incident stands out in my mind. The coal mine was about 60 miles from Barrow. Some of the workers stayed out there months at a time. They brought the coal to Barrow in large sleds pulled by cats. That would be capital C cats, as in snow cats or similar. One of the women at the mine requested she be flown back to Barrow because her baby was ill. A bush pilot flew out to get them. He was overdue at Barrow that evening and a search party was sent out. They found the plane. Both the pilot and the woman were dead, but the baby was still alive, crying in its mother's hood. The woman had apparently stabbed the pilot in the back. That is one time the magistrate was called. Another bush pilot was going to Fairbanks for R&R just before Christmas. Most of his friends gave him orders for some holiday spirits to be brought back, also other goodies to brighten the long winter. His name was Fess Stangle. He did not arrive back for Christmas or New Year's. We were worried about him, and the regular weekly airline, Wynn, even diverted their planes to fly over the route through the books range that he would have taken. They never found him. One day shortly after New Year's, he landed in Barrow, in his own plane and looking a little worse for wear. What a story he had to tell. All the booze and candles, etc., he had been carrying back for his friends, literally saved his life. After many days of trying, he was able to devise a way of heating his oil and engine by utilizing his cargo. We left Barrow in July of 1951. The Indian service suggested I not deliver my baby at Barrow because we did not have a doctor. We left Alaska and transferred to civil service positions stateside. I returned in 1967 with two children and have worked as a registered nurse ever since. 
I worked at the Wesleyan Nursing Home in Seward for nine years. I'm presently employed as a school nurse at the Alaska Vocational Technical Center in Seward. It is an adult vocational school and I am in my ninth year as a state employee. We are a year-round school and average 200 students at a time. My role as a nurse has certainly changed since my career started. I began as a bedside nurse whose basic duty was personal nursing care for the patient, including bathing the patient, washing down the bed, and cleaning up the room, which also meant mopping the floor. As graduates, we were capable of running a floor and supervising the nurses' aides and ancillary personnel. Nurses today have become so sophisticated and specialized in their training. They have literally bloomed. I have a one-woman office, do all my own organizing, teach industrial first aid to all students, provide medical care, practice preventative medicine, and am writing this on a word processor. I love it. I know this is more history than you needed to read, but once I started writing, I found it hard to quit. There are so many stories that come to mind. I wish you much success on compiling a history of nursing in Alaska. If the story you have just heard sounds familiar and you know who wrote it, will you let us know? We'd love to get a name attached to this document. Barb Manns. Barb was born in 1948 and graduated from Olympus High School in Salt Lake City in 1966 as one of 50 presidential scholars and became one of University of Washington's first two women forestry majors that fall. In the summer of 1970, Barb went to Alaska to earn money in order to finish her degree at UW. She traveled between Seattle and Alaska and eventually obtained a BS in fisheries from UW in 1975. While in Alaska, Manns worked for the Forest Service, the Department of Fish and Game, and held several waitressing jobs at various Alaskan lodges and restaurants. She also worked as a cook and deckhand on fishing boats and tugboats. In 1976, Barb went back to Seattle to study law at the University of Washington. While attending UW, she also took classes in diesel mechanics at Seattle Community College. During this time, she worked for the Washington State Ferry Service as an oiler and engineer. Barb graduated with a law degree in 1982, but still continued working for the ferry service until her death in 1983. This is the story of Barb's time in Alaska, as told by excerpts from her letters written to David and Carolyn Scott in Washington State. David was Barb's forestry professor at UW. The letters are from the Barb Mann's letters in the Archives and Special Collections. Portage, Alaska, June 22, 1970. Dear Scots, Greetings from Weirdsville. So much has happened since I arrived a week ago that I'm almost afraid to stay through the summer. I'm not sure I could stand the place. On Wednesday, my second day of work, the entire district was down at Portage attending a safety, leadership, etc. school. Everybody except me, since the school was for potential supervisors, and evidently my supervisors figure there isn't a chance that women will ever hold a supervisory position in the Forest Service. Excerpt from July 27, 1970 letter. Although I'm really getting along well here this year and really enjoying it, there are some things which are more intolerable than ever. After two full summers of playing Pollyanna, my superiors still don't believe I came here to work and not to play Queen of the Woods. The district ranger took a couple of the fellows on the crew out on the town a few weeks back to find out what was really going on at Portage. And one of the first questions he asked was, who's sleeping with Barb? This followed by a couple of days of my being jumped by my boss because I stayed out all night with the guy in the railroad gang on my day off. Meanwhile, the guys are making a regular practice of raking one of the waitresses over the coals. She's actually about the only honest girl who's ever worked at that lodge, Portage Glacier Lodge.
But she didn't realize she was dealing with vultures. As soon as one guy came back and started telling stories, true or not, everyone else who dated her had to tell an equally good story or go on better to prove his manhood. Yes, I agree, the old traditional morality, the good old double standard, isn't as bad as it is sometimes depicted, it's worse. After her job for the Park Service ended that summer, Barb decided to stay in Alaska instead of going back to school, mainly for financial reasons. In October of 1970, Barb began working at the Sportsman Lodge in Moodier. Of her experience of working as head cook, Barb wrote, I'm really having a ball. This job is a total challenge, mentally, physically, and emotionally. It's a mental challenge because I don't know how to cook, and here I am doing it for a living. It's a physical challenge because I'm on my feet almost all day. Once in a while, I have five minutes in which to sit down, but not often. It's an emotional challenge because there are guys are a rough bunch. Hard to take sometimes, anyway, and when I'm running on three hours of sleep, well... I haven't thrown a plate at anybody yet, but it's bound to happen soon. Barb decided to stay in Whittier through the winter. She wrote, This place is beautiful. I'll send a picture of the view from the dining room window. It's beautiful. No other word for it. By April, however, Barb began working at Summit Lake Lodge on the Seward Highway after a brief stint at the Eureka Lodge on the Glen Highway. She left the Eureka Lodge when she heard there was a job available at the Portage Cafe and moved back to good old Portage. However, the job itself was miserable. Cooking and waitressing in one of those short-order joints is a bore after having held a job like the one in Whittier. Barb enjoyed the winter in Portage, skiing, ice skating, hiking, camping, and of course worrying about the wildlife. Other people worry about bears when they're in the woods, but my phobia is moose. I hate the stupid, gawky, ugly beasts. But despite her wonderful winter in Portage, there's no getting around the fact that the job was still a bore, my boss was a nagging skinflint, and living conditions were abominable. So she moved from Portage and started working at Summit Lake Lodge. Barb spent the summer of 1971 as a naturalist for the Forest Service aboard the Bartlett, which ran between Valdez and Whittier. Barb wrote about her experience in the Bartlett to the Scott family. What made this summer really interesting, interesting in that even a nightmare can be interesting, is that ships were the bastions of extreme male chauvinism. This was the first year that there had been a naturalist aboard the Bartlett. They've had them on the southeastern ships for a couple years now, and it never occurred to the people on that ship that I was anything but a young dum-dum with stars in her eyes. When I first came on board, there were all kinds of compliments about my appearance, etc. It never occurred to these guys that a woman might have something between her ears. It also never occurred to them that I was there to work and nothing else. To these guys, a woman isn't a person, she's a thing, an object. I know I sound like a woman's libber, but I didn't really know what the women's lib groups were talking about until I got into the situation. After her summer job ended, she moved to Kodiak to get a job on a crab boat, king crab season is a mid-winter thing, or in a processing plant out on the Aleutian chain. But, as she wrote, she... Had no luck so far because of discrimination against women. Although it was tough for her to find the job she wanted, she did find one working as a diner cook. And of Kodiak, Barb wrote, There's no place on earth like Kodiak. It's wonderful. In her letter dated January 2, 1972 to the Scott family, Barb wrote of her hopes of the new year. I would like to get a job with the Fish and Game Department. The regional administrator admitted that if I were a man, I would be a shoe-in because of my forestry background and Alaska resident status. 
However, we can't subject women to the harshness of field conditions, so I suggest you apply for a clerical job. This is the same rotten trip that I have gotten from the Forest Service for four years, and I've about decided to quit just being mad about it and start taking some sensible action. After the holidays are over, I'm going to try doing some more talking at the Fish and Game office, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to go see the local attorney. This type of discrimination is illegal, and the lawyer is a good guy who might be able to give some sensible advice so that a good cause won't be lost by bad tactics. There's nothing unusual about a person as young and energetic as I am wanting to do outdoor work that involves some physical labor. Sitting behind a desk all the time just isn't my thing. The next letter to the Scots that we have in the collection is dated to August 21st, 1972. In this letter, Barb is excited and happy to finally have the job she wanted. I'm spending the summer, end of May through end of September, at a fish warehouse in the brush of Kodiak Island. My job is to count the number of salmon coming through the weir so that they'll know when to open and close down the commercial salmon season. The weir is located at Upper Station Lake, about a mile from Olga Bay, an enclosed bay on the south end of Kodiak Island. Her next correspondence with the Scots is written February 21, 1973, when she moved to New Orleans to look for a job, but by April, after staying with the Scots in Seattle for a while, she was back in Kodiak. Her next letter came in June. She had finished working at the ware and began working at a cannery and restaurant. I surely hope I never have to make a living in a cannery. Standing there for eight hours breaking the tops off of crab claws isn't my idea of living. It's the kind of job that really teaches one the value of a dollar, however. Now, whenever I want to buy something, I figure how many crab claws I'd have to break to buy it and usually end up not buying it. I suspect that if I'd had to pay for my schooling that way, there would have been fewer cut classes, or maybe I wouldn't have gone at all. Barb was thinking of applying to the University of Alaska Fairbanks to get a teaching certificate in hopes to teach in the Alaska bush. She had sent them her transcripts for evaluation, but in a letter from August 20, 1973, Barb was working on a fishing boat as a deckhand. Salmon fishing is a ridiculous way to make a living, she wrote. But it surely is fun. I can go to my grave happy now that I've had the chance to work in a real commercial boat. In the letter, Barb states the salmon was so poor that they closed commercial fishing just two and a half weeks into the season. While waiting for the season to open again, she began working in a restaurant and mending a shrimp net. She also decided to not return to school in the fall because there was the possibility of getting a job in a tanner crab boat. As Barb stated, School will always be there, but chances for females to work on crab boats are few and far between. Barb went to Peru in November. Then her next letter was written from Kidtoy Bay Hatchery, April 15, 1974. Of the hatchery, she wrote, The living accommodations are unbelievable, at least as nice as any home I've ever lived in, with every possible modern convenience. While there, she worked for the Department of Fish and Game, clipping the adipose fins and ventral fins of salmon. On May 28, 1974, Barb describes how she was sent to Akalura Lake where to count smolt for three weeks, and by July 27, she was back at Carlick Lake. The next letter by Barb is written in July of 1975, where she is living in Valdez and working on a halibut boat. Then, by January 29, 1976, Barb was working on a tugboat as a cook. Of the job, she said, This job is about as exciting a job as I've ever had, even if I'm still just a cook. The tug she was on pushed an oil barge between Anchorage and a refinery in Nikiski.
Barb worked in this tug until May. By then, she had applied to various law schools and was accepted into the program at University of Washington. She had some time off from the tug and began traveling around the state. She went to Uniclete and Nome. In her letter, she writes, What's really frustrating is not knowing how to relax and enjoy myself. Normally, after working hard for four months, I'd want to drink and party and be with people. But I've been with people constantly for so long and have had to go drinking with them just for the sake of getting along, even when I didn't want to. So partying doesn't appeal. Guess I'll spend a big evening writing letters and reading Time magazine. The last letter we have from Barb is written a couple of weeks later on May 28, 1976. She was accepted into the law program at George Washington University, but had decided to go to UW instead. She only had a few more months before the beginning of her semester and hoped to be back on the tug for a few months over the summer. Her last letter we have that was written to the Scots closes with, I'm working as a waitress at the Royal Inn in Anchorage and going crazy. I hate being a waitress and I hate Anchorage. But when I checked with the port captain today, he said he won't need me for another week or two. So I guess I'd better get my body downtown and start pouring coffee and smiling. Grr. See you in September. Barb. Thank you for joining us for this month's episode of Archiving AK. Next month, as it's National Poetry Month, we're going to highlight some of the original Alaskan poetry held in archives, museums, and libraries all across Alaska.